We'll be in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 27 today, if you'll turn there. Our God is amazing. We are so privileged to have a relationship with our Maker, that we can know God, that He knows us, that He wants to hear from us, and that we can learn of Him. So many devout people in ages past have only dreamed of having the kind of access to God that we have through His Holy Spirit that lives within us. And uh, what what a wonder we have in the gospel and in our Savior. And if that sounds a bit boring, well, 1 Peter 1.12, it says the preaching of the gospel, it's things which the angels desire to look into. You think of an angel, a created being who's living in the presence with God, whose purpose is to serve him and to minister in his presence. It's like they're in his courts, they're in his inner circle. And yet, when they consider the gospel and the love that God has shown for us, that we have been purchased with the blood of Jesus, that our our sin has been atoned for, that we now have not only access to the presence of God, but as his children and co-heirs with Christ, that's something that interests them. So for, for them to be interested in the gospel is really amazing. It shouldn't be dull or boring to us to think about what we have in Christ and the future that awaits us, and the presence of God that we have inside of us, it's really a cause. So it's not a curiosity or a novelty for us, but rejoicing and rest. It's, we have, there's no God like our God, no Savior like ours. Let's thank Him. Thank you, God, for your glorious ways, for your love that you demonstrated through Christ on the cross, that you've given us your word, that you've placed your Holy Spirit within us, and you've made us born again. We're so privileged to know you and that you desire to be with us and to spend time with us and to speak to us. Even in the, in the cold of night, you will come, you will speak, and you never leave or forsake us. Lord, we get tired sometimes of this life, but you don't grow tired of us. I pray that we would no, never grow weary in doing good, knowing that we'll reap if we faint not. Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts today through your word, that you would Uh, quicken us by your spirit to respond rejoicing to the things you say. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've reached the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He was a Jew that was so a little background on Paul as we get into this passage today. He was raised in Jerusalem under the law of Moses. He was part of that inner circle in Judaism. He was a Pharisee. Some believe he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which is uh, called the supreme religious body in the land of Israel during the time of the temple. So it was, he was kind of a big shot as far as that goes. And for a long time, he was zealous for the law. And not only was he zealous to do the law, but he persecuted anyone who opposed the law. If there were Jews who were practicing otherwise, he was quick to to persecute them. And when people became Christians, he he took it upon himself to persecute them, to arrest them, to punish them. But when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, it changed him. He went from Saul, the persecutor of Christ, to Paul, the follower of Jesus. And he left that inner circle of Judaism to enter into a relationship with God he had only strived for. He had fought for this. He wanted it, but it was always eluding him. 
And his heart was to see Jews and Gentiles saved through the gospel by repentance and faith in Jesus. And he wants to, he wanted to make disciples after wanting to kill disciples. When he arrived back from his third missionary journey with a gift for the church in Jerusalem, he was met by the elders and they said, you know, Paul, there's been a lot of, he'd been away for about three years. And they told him that all these false rumors had been circulating that he was now preaching against the law. He was saying that circumcision was sinful and that it was wrong to keep the law of Moses. Uh, but Paul kept the law himself. And to show that he wasn't antagonistic against the law or Christians who believed it was right for them to continue keeping the law, these are the Jews, that he was favorable towards Christian Jews that he would sponsor four men who had taken a Nazarite vow and he would supply the offering. And that would give a it would show that he was not antagonistic against the law and that he was still, you know, on the, on their team, so to speak, and that the, the Christians and Jews in Jerusalem would be open to the message spoken through him. And he agreed to this, not to say Christians needed to keep the law to be saved, um, but to affirm that the law is good and those who felt led to continue keeping it, that was fine for them to do so, even as he did. So we're in Acts 21, 27. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. At the end of the seven days of that vow, he's in the temple, and he's recognized by Jews from Asia who had likely come to keep the feast. He wanted to be there by Pentecost, and so they were still there. And they say, hey, we know that guy. And they cause this big uproar. They say, he's been preaching against... Us, the Jews, he's been preaching against this place and the law, and he's been saying all these awful things. He's even polluted the temple. And it says the whole city was thrown into an uproar. And they grabbed him and dragged him outside. Their accusation, it's a mix of lies and assumptions. They had seen him with an Ephesian, and they figured he brought him into the temple and defiled it. This was something they were extremely particular about, because you have the temple mount even today. You can't just walk up on the Temple Mount. It's closely guarded. And uh, being Muslim-run, you're not allowed to bring holy literature up there either. If you're seen to be praying or to be reading a holy book, they will quickly escort you off the Mount. In those days, it was even more strict because you had the Temple Mount area, you had the outer court, then you had, and that's where the women and the, the Gentiles could go. But on the inside, there was the place where only the men could go. And then in the temple, no one could go except the Levites and priests who were on duty that day. And there was a sign in Greek and Latin written that said, if you cross this point, you're doing so at the risk of your own life. We're not going to be held responsible for your death. The Jews took it so seriously, the Romans allowed them to execute people, regardless, even if they were Roman, if they transgressed and went beyond where they should. So to to uh, defile the temple, 
to go to bring a Gentile into that inner court, it was a serious offense. So everyone's just like, what? They close the doors. They're going to make sure there's no more defilement. Verse 31, now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some of the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people followed after crying out, Away with him! The stirring of the mob, it caused the Romans to mobilize. The Romans had a very pragmatic approach to keeping the peace. They didn't care what the problem was about. They weren't interested in picking a side and having a debate. It was going to be stopped immediately. And they were not, they were highly trained, very devoted uh, warriors, and they were not going to mess around. They would use the most brutal tactics just to keep people in line, and this was totally uh, out of order. They would keep this insurrection or riot at bay, and they said, this is going to end right now. And so the commander, who was over a thousand men, and centurions, who are over hundreds of men, they ran to see what was going on. And it says, when the Jews saw the advancing troops, they left beating Paul. So they had been beating him for quite some time. If you think about, you know, there's a bit of an uproar. They're starting to punch him up a bit. Word reaches at a distance. Oh, yeah, there's this big to-do. What's going on? Is it a riot? What's going on? Well, then they had to run all that way and all that time. Guess who's getting beaten up by a mob? Paul. When the, and the, so they stopped beating Paul when they saw the troops. Like, oh, you know, whistling. Not doing anything over here. And uh, as Agabus said, Paul is chained. He's trying to ask him questions, but because of the people shouting, he can't get an answer. It was decided he needed to be brought to the barracks for questioning. All the while, the Jews following and shouting, away with him, away with him. And when they were saying away with him, they're not saying, get him out of here. They're saying, he's not worthy to live. Kill him. He's worthy of death. Wipe him off this earth, is what they're saying. And the soldiers had to literally lift him up and carry him to get him away from the mob. Very similar to what was said when the envious lying accusers of Jesus, they said, away with him. We don't want anything to do with him. His blood be upon us and our children. Continuing in verse 37. And and today, as you've seen, it's quite a narrative. So we're just going to go through that narrative and uh, keep going right into the next chapter. Because this chapter ends in a comma. So that doesn't really work for us. Uh, verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins in out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. 
And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. He's being brought into the barracks for questioning. He politely asked the commander, May I have a word with you? In Greek. And this surprised uh, the commander because it showed that he was well-educated. That it, and it was very uncommon for Jews to learn Greek. It was not encouraged for the Jewish people to learn the languages of other nations. That's what Josephus wrote in Antiquities of the Jews. And so he says, aren't you that Egyptian that led this insurrection? And Josephus had written about um, a riot that happened at on the temp- towards the Temple Mount and that the Romans quickly quashed that uprising. And his guess is way off, right? He's not the Egyptian. He doesn't have 4,000 assassins. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. It's a high-profile city. And can I please speak to the people? Now, if you were literally being beaten to death, the Romans showing up and being arrested by them would be like, I'm so happy that you're here. Get me away from here. You would be like, happy, most of us, I would be, to uh, go to the safety of the barracks because you're a Roman citizen, as Paul was, and you're like, wow, okay, got out of that one. The Lord provided this for me. But he's like, I want to speak to the people. Would that have been your response? He wanted to address the mob rather than run. Proclaiming Jesus by sharing his testimony was important to Paul, and that boldness, it should mark us as believers, followers of Christ. And so the captain's like, okay, go ahead. And Paul motions with his hand and gets the attention of the people. And once he had their attention, as he began speaking to them in Hebrew, it says they quieted down even more because they were he was speaking their language, a language that that commander probably didn't know very well. And his introduction, it's very similar to that of the martyr Stephen in Acts 7-2, where he said, brethren and fathers, listen. So he's saying, we're, we are family, and I respect you as my elders. And so brethren, it's that closeness, and then father, he's, he's showing his humility before them. And it was important to him to provide a defense, because he said, um, hear my defense before you now. He put into practice what he wrote in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, which says, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to, you ought to answer each one. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3 that it's fitting that at all times we're able to give an answer for the faith with meekness and fear. Paul doesn't complain about that he was beaten up or that he was falsely accused, or that, hey, you guys have it all wrong. He doesn't go that direction at all. He begins to speak about his life. But central to this defense is really proclaiming Jesus. And this is so cool, the way he does this, continuing in the middle of verse 2. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, 
binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. The first thing Paul establishes is all that he had in common with the people. He says, I am a Jew. I share your background. I was brought up in this city under the tutelage of Gamaliel, who is a man highly respected and known by all the Jews. It says that in Acts 5.34, where it says, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people. So it's someone that they knew. He says, hey, he was my teacher. And they go, oh, Gamaliel, right. Very important. And he says, I was zealous for the law. I persecuted those of the way. And I did more than just punch them up in the temple. I even got permission from the chief priest to go wherever I heard there were Christians and arrest them and persecute them to the death. Even Damascus, that's 220 Ks away. That's how solid I am or how I was against I'm, I'm right with you guys. I know what you're feeling right now. The anger that you feel towards me, I felt that same anger. Because I'm zealous for God, and I'm zealous for his laws. I, ha- I have intense loyalty to our God. He's trying to establish that with them. I'm one of you. I was raised the way you've been raised, and I know what it is to hate every other way. Verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. He began to speak of the revelation of Jesus Christ as Lord. He says, what shall I do, Lord? And who was that Lord? Jesus. Totally transformed him. And he's arrested by this. He's going to uh, chain believers And instead, he's arrested by Jesus along the road, blinded by this light. Noon, but this light outshone the sun. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice identified himself as Jesus of Nazareth, the one he was persecuting. And this shows us that when followers of Jesus are persecuted, Jesus takes it personally. It's an affront against him. And then he says, go into Damascus, you'll receive additional information there. And then he said, you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. Now, how amazing is this? Someone who hates Jesus, who's against uh, the gospel, the way, as he calls it, but he was a man chosen by God with things God had appointed for him to do. He wasn't told exactly what those next things were, but he had the next step. Go to Damascus. This is true for us. God has prepared many good things for us to do. Not knowing what they all include doesn't keep us from taking that first step. 
Paul was humbled, shocked, amazed, perhaps for the first time realizing how blind he had been concerning Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah. How could this be? Verse 12, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. He stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What Paul did not say in his address is that for three days he was blind, and he fasted from all food and water as he prayed. Ananias, he was a man devout according to the law, a man of good reputation. He doesn't mention that he was a Christian, but he says this devout man kept the law. He came and called me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. He says that hour I looked at him. His eyes were open to see, and the message that he was given, he had been chosen by the God of our fathers to know God's will, to see the just one who's Christ, and to hear his voice. And this is, I believe, true for every Christian, every follower of Jesus, every child of God. We've been chosen before we came to God. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And he ordained us to bear fruit. He chose us, and in response to his choosing us, we have chosen him. His will has been revealed to us through his word, hasn't it? We're the sheep of God's fold who hear his voice. And there will a day come where we will see him as he is. We will see him face to face. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And having been born again, we've entered into a relationship with the living God. And as such, we are his witnesses of all that we have seen and heard. And if you've been born again, if Jesus lives within you, then you're a different person than you used to be. So you have a testimony of how he's changed you, how he's worked in your life how he has ministered in and through you. If you can't say that Jesus has changed you, well, then how can you say you've been born again? We will be changed. We'll all have experience with him. Ananias urged Paul. He said, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. God had done a work in Paul, therefore there were good works for Paul to do. He was told to be baptized, have his sins forgiven, to keep calling on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the way. In obedience to Jesus, in identification with him, he was to be baptized. The Bible is very clear that salvation comes by grace through faith alone. Baptism signifies how we've been washed clean of sin, how we've been raised from the water, even as Jesus is now risen. He was called to repentance. Paul had persecuted and hated Jesus, but now he is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul called Jesus Lord on the road, and now he was to put that, that was being put to the test. Is he going to obey him as Lord? Verse 17, and by the way, he was. He doesn't talk about that in this address. Verse 17, now it happened as when I returned to Jerusalem 
and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And when they raised their voice, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Paul recalls a time about three years after being born again where he's in Jerusalem. This took place about 20 years before this address to the people in Jerusalem. He had another revelation of Christ. He said, I was in the temple, I was praying, And Jesus said, you need to leave this place quickly, depart quickly, because they're not going to hear what you have to say. They will not receive your testimony concerning me. Did Paul say, right away, Lord, I'm your disciple? No, he doesn't. He resists that. He does so very gently, but he resists what what God was saying. He says, I'm the right person to share the gospel with these people because I'm like them. I have a shared history with them and a background. And it reminds God, he reminds Jesus, how he once persecuted the Christians. How he was once strongly opposed to the way and how he beat them and how he sought to persecute them and arrest them. And he even consented to the death of Stephen as he guarded his clothes. Due to his Jewish background, and certainly wouldn't he be the ideal person to minister to Jews? Jesus was not swayed. He said, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Because God rules, he can overrule. And he overruled Paul here. Paul's response to this direct command from Jesus, it reveals our tendency to imagine we know where we would be most useful, where we would be most effective in ministry. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was raised in Jerusalem. He had sat under Gamaliel. He would have been part of that Jewish inner circle. Who better to share the truth to the Jews than he? And what a fervent desire he had. As we read in Romans, he had this heart for the Jews to come to Christ. He wanted them to be saved. Even as he had. He he had been where they were, and he says, I want them to know the way. They're blind to it now, but I want, I would give my salvation if they would just see that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. But God had chosen to send Paul to the Gentiles far away. It wasn't what Paul was thinking. Paul thought, if I could just share with them, they would listen to my testimony. And Jesus is like, no, they won't. You need to leave. We might have this idea because Paul traveled so much that he enjoyed long voyages, that he he liked being away from Jerusalem. But that's not the case. His heart was there, but his heart was for all people to come to Christ, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. 
Since Jesus was Paul's Lord, ultimately he embraced and he rejoiced in what God had called him to do, and he did it with all his might. So he went to the synagogues when he went abroad, but he also went to the Gentiles. He went down where the ladies were washing their laundry in the water's edge on a Sunday, and he spoke to them about Jesus. I mean, he mixed with people. He wanted to see everyone come to Christ. So the question is, do you have a self-determined scope of ministry? Do you have an idea where, you know, this is my wheelhouse. This is where I fit in the plan. This is, you know, I have this background. Who better than to minister to this group of people than me? You might think you're best suited for teaching adults, but God's called you to minister to children. You might be a business professional. Never been arrested, but God's called you to minister in prisons. Of course, God can use someone in prison, as he used Paul, as he used Joseph. God may send you far away. Maybe that's quite a fear that you have. Like, he may send me far away. Well, he may. I'm from San Diego, and here I am in Australia. You never know. Perhaps you want to go. And God's saying, you are precisely where I want you to be right now to be ministering for my sake. Our assumption can be that God wants to use us in a realm that's comfortable, that's familiar, but God knows better. He knows what we need, and he knows how he's going to employ us and use us. And who among us is worthy to question him? After relating how Jesus called him to go to Gentiles, verse 22, it said, And they listened to him until this word. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Now, what was the word that he said that just set them off? Gentiles. He said, Gentiles. I was sent to the Gentiles. What? Get rid of him. Now, the the commander is like, what just happened? There was a nice conversation we were having here. The address was being received. And suddenly, everyone's all fired up again. Uh, it's a problem. So why was it? Is it, you know, the Jews didn't have a problem with teaching Gentiles. They were fine to preach the law to Gentiles. Gentiles could become Jews if they would adopt the practices. It was very difficult. It was very lengthy, but there was a process where a Gentile could become a Jew. So that wasn't really the issue. The issue was the Jews saw themselves as keepers of the truth, the chosen people of God, the ones who knew the way to God through the law. And by saying that he was sent by God to the Gentiles, he is saying they can come to God without the law. And that was ridiculous. They're like, no, 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 no. This goes against everything that we know. And they were incensed against him. To put Jew and Gentile on the same level, highly offensive. Jesus had spoken to Jews as he walked among them in John 5, 37 through 40. He said, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. 
Jesus affirmed, he is the way. And we can have his word abiding in us because Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We can hear his voice. And that's by the grace of God through the gospel. The law could only condemn and kill. No bonus points, no life for trying to follow it as best you can. But Jesus, he came to give life and life abundantly, to free us from the uh, sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. He gave, came to bring life for all people, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, the slaves or the free, the, the woman or the man, but to all. God's invitation to the Gentiles does not remove the special place God has for the Jews but having rejected the gospel, as Paul said at one point, you've, you've said that you're unworthy to receive eternal life. We're going to go to the Gentiles. So Paul says, go to the Gentiles. People are you know, shouting, throwing dirt in the air, taking off their clothes. Remember Paul when he's guarding that pile of clothes? That's like they're getting ready to throw stones, big ones. They're ready to exert themselves to kill someone. So that's a really bad sign uh, as far as the commander who's trying to keep the peace. So he's like, all right, we got to bring this guy inside. Um, I think it's time to soften him up a little bit with scourging to discover the truth. It was like torture first, ask questions later. Now, a spoiler for next week, Paul doesn't actually get scourged. He, because of his Roman citizenship, he is able to not have that happen, though he remains in chains. Scourging, however, was the path that God chose for Jesus when he came to that place on his way to Calvary. Think of Jesus, the Almighty God. You talk about being on the, the inside of like you know, the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the, the heavenly realm. Jesus puts on human flesh. He, he is so glorious that even the angels are not deserving of his presence. He puts on human flesh and he comes to us. Those people whom he knew would reject him and not hear his voice. It was not an exercise in futility. It was a demonstration of his great love for us. He humbled himself lower than any man because he was higher than every man being creator of man, and he allowed himself to be betrayed, forsaken, arrested, scourged, and crucified. Could you please turn to John chapter 19? John chapter 19. The people had a choice of whom they would have released to them at the Passover. And they chose to have Barabbas, who was a notorious murderer and thief, to be set free. He said, which of the two do you want me to release? Barabbas, really, really bad guy. Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. <laughs> we want Barabbas. Okay, so he releases Barabbas. John 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. 
rejected, condemned by the Jews. Jesus was scourged without mercy. He was ridiculed by the Romans. Both Jew and Gentile raged against him, yet they were the very ones he came to save, and he stood before them unwavering in his love for them and devotion to the Father. And if the stones that Paul was standing near could speak near that temple mount, it's likely they could rehearse the shouts that called out, away with him when they spoke of Christ on that dark day when he was slain. If we skip to verse 14 of John 19, it says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And that picture, when you see Jesus standing there, he's wearing that robe, he's drenched in blood, and he has that crown of thorns upon his head. Are you looking into the eyes of your king? Do you call him king? Will you own him then? It's one thing to own him when he stands supreme or on the the back of the white horse that is spoken of in Revelation where he's conquering. But the crucified Christ, will you own him as your king, as your savior? Will you fall down before him in worship and trust in him? Or will you say, away with him? God, God forgive us when we, we may not say this so with our mouths, but in our actions say, away with him, when he says something to us. Praise the Lord, his love is greater than our folly. He is able to redeem. And his atoning blood is able to cleanse every sin. We were far off, destined for hell because of our sin, but the blood of Jesus, the Bible says, has brought us near. If you could turn just to Ephesians chapter 2, 17 and 18. If you feel far from God today, know that the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice on Calvary, that's, he is the one who draws us near. And there's, if I get lost on the way, I'm always one to try to retrace my steps the way that I came to get back to the starting point. I don't know if you guys are like that, but if, if I take a wrong turn, I'll try to find where I made the wrong turn. And to do that, I've got to go through a series of wrong turns to get back to the right place. Now, with Christ, and you've gone off the, you've gone far away, you don't need to retrace your steps and see how, how many ways did I go wrong to get here? We can go right back to the beginning and come to Christ as at the first, as at the beginning, and fall before him as our king. Be washed of our sins. Be cleansed. Because God, when He, when Jesus died, he's, he's cleansed of, of all sin, the sin that we've committed in the past and that we will commit by his grace. He brings us close, much closer than we could even imagine. Ephesians 2, 17, 18 says of Christ, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So we are invited into God's presence, into his inner circle 
as his redeemed chosen children. How phenomenal this is. It doesn't matter if you're, you're far or you're near. He preaches peace to you. That we can have peace with God through uh, being born again, through repentance for salvation. And the gospel should never get old. It should never get boring because it's so needed for life. We have a king who was crucified, but he is risen and living. And in that we rejoice that he conquered the power of sin and death. And he says to us, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. God just doesn't want fellowship alone with us, but he wants to make us more like him. He doesn't want to make angels more like him. He wants us to be more like him. It's phenomenal how much God loves us and what he's done. Let's be those who are willing, as Paul, to go to a place far away, out of his comfort zone, out of where he was thinking he was going to go. Whatever that means, that we would be willing to heed the words of our Savior and uh, obey. Could I please have the worship team come forward? We're going to spend a little time as we receive communion together. So this is, all are welcome to receive, uh, who are born again, and for whom Christ is your Savior. So as as we're led in a song, I encourage you all to come up, a couple lines up here to take of the bread and the cup, and then I'll just lead in a prayer when uh, when the song concludes. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray that we would we would see him exalted. Even as Paul did on the road to Damascus, he was just thrown down and, and said, what should I do, Lord? Lord, bring us to that place of complete submission and reverence before you. You are to be feared. You are an awesome, mighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who rules, the one who overrules. Lord, uh, cause us not to resist your word, but to be yielded to your voice and to respond in obedience to all that you say. Lord, we rejoice uh, that our our Savior Jesus, he demonstrated his love for us on the cross. Um, we were his enemies, and yet he died for us. We were far away, and yet he called out to us. And through through the ages, you have reached out and made yourself known to a people who did not know you and who did not care for you. Lord, we are those people. And we rejoice to be called by your name. We, we celebrate and remember uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made. And we can't, we can't even comprehend it fully, but we thank you that we can receive of it. And we can put our faith in you and have new life, eternal life, abundant life through Christ. Lord, I pray you would wash us clean of all sin, of all defilements, that our hands would be free from idols, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, and that you would do a mighty work in our midst today. Lord, be honored, be glorified as you ought to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So unworthy that we would ever have a crown. And Jesus being the King of kings, that he would break our chains. That's all we have. We have chains and he breaks them. Praise the Lord for his salvation through Jesus. Let's pray. 
Our Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. That he put off uh, that divine form to become a man. God made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his body that was broken on Calvary. Thank you for those stripes by which we are healed. Thank you for his blood that was shed. And he has sprinkled many nations. Thank you that his blood is effectual to cleanse us of all sin. And that we can be uh, deemed righteous by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the power that you work in and through us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the new life that you've given us through the cleansing shed blood of Jesus Christ that we have been bought with something far more precious than gold or silver that perishes, but with the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. We thank you, Lord. We do lay our burdens down, Lord. We lay our chains down. We we throw our crowns down, Lord. We don't want to be king of our lives anymore. We don't want to be ruler when you have rule. You are the ruler. Lord, we just submit to you. We choose to obey you. And we reverence you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together.